0: Welcome, everybody, to the Tulsa World mm-hmm. Opinion Video and Podcast. I'm Jenny Graham, the Editorial's Editor of the Tulsa World.
1: I'm Bobby the Editorial Writer and Columnist.
0: And like a lot of weeks, a lot of stuff's happening. So last week we mentioned the big news that we had just found out about, and we promised we'd talk about it this week, is the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And you know... It did not help a divided country, certainly. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it is a step backwards. I mean, I'm, I'm a Catholic. I have my own personal views of, of life and being pro-life. But for a public policy, I've been very strong choice that I don't feel like I, sh- I should make choices for other people. Um, my faith. My tenets and my faith, I don't feel like I should impose upon other people, but <clears throat> I recognize everyone's different. And he, even on our board, we have different thoughts of, you know, when life begins and those bigger questions, but this, you know, it, th- this just started me thinking about what world we're coming into, that we talk about a post-Roe world. And so, you know, we, I did a column that's out today online and and in print Mm -hmm. Sunday and our editorial board took a position on not the decision itself or abortion, but you know, in an editorial and, and I'll just kind of remind people that the Tulsa world that I have looked into has never taken a position on abortion itself. Like they had no editorial board that I can find has taken Mm -hmm. a position on that. But they certainly have taken positions for the last 50 years that any laws that are passed have to pass constitutional muster, that it can't be in conflict. Well, Roe sort of protected a lot of that, that, those rights. Well, now we're in a position where we have on the books one of the, the strictest ban in America. You know, if you're a rape victim, if you're an incest victim, you have to carry the child's term. Um, there's a whole civil law area, and so our board, when we discussed this, our editorial that ran earlier this week, basically said this does not help the country having this kind of decision because it's just creating more division. It's going to create that cultural divide, but we can certainly look at the state laws that we have and, and uh, the position that we took, and I don't think it's super bold, but it's to say we should have exemptions for rape victims and incest victims, that we should not keep victimizing girls. And some girls are young, 11, 12, who have been raped by family members, by people they know, and now know they're pregnant and it's a harm. So, you know, as far as our advocating, you know, we recognize this is the law and we have to work within the law but we think that Oklahoma has swung way too far that we have to protect the victims. And we don't like that civil law at all, which we can get into next week. But but what did you think about or what have you thought about since this came down last week?
1: Ooh. So <clears throat> golly. It's a heavy it is a lot heavy. of people
0: want to break it down to black and white, pro or against. And I just I think a lot of us are sort of in the middle and just see these complexities.
1: It's heavy because, you know, when you're looking at the the pro-life movement and post-Roe v. Wade, um, such a long-standing goal, and it's been couched in very strong terms and very black and white terms, as you said. Well, now we're faced with a situation where we've got to deal with it. What are the repercussions of it? It's not like you're just going to happily have this thing where people carry all these pregnancies to term, and every child that can't be supported by their their biological mother is, you know, joyously and happily sent out for adoption and live happily ever after. There's a lot of repercussions that are going to come with this now. And I wonder if there is going to be kind of a little bit of a whipsaw. In some states where it's like, okay, well, we have these state options and we don't want this, you know, we don't want abortion on demand, but we need to carve out some exceptions here. And we need to start having some realistic policy discussions about what we're going to do to help these new mothers who otherwise may not have had that child. Um, will that happen? I don't know. Will it happen in states like Oklahoma? Personally, I kind of doubt it, um, unless there is some should. kind of groundswell.
0: But but it should. I mean, if you're going to be pro-life, then you need to be for paid maternity leave. You need to pay for, you know, be for child tax credits. For mm-hmm. you know, you need <clears throat> foster care system. Right now, we have like seven thousand foster kids and like maybe two thousand yeah. homes. I mean, it's, it's well. Not, let's yeah. can
1: we just have like a little bit of moment of honesty on this.
0: Mm -hmm. you're always Um, honest of course go ahead
1: when you look at the the core of the people who have been pushing for this for 50 years these are folks who not only espouse the whole thing of like the ideal nuclear family and personal responsibility and save yourself you know your your virginity till marriage and all of these things They don't just believe it but a lot of them have lived it so they think that this is something that should happen and can happen across the board it's a very ideological point of view and when you're talking about ideologies within our state government and at the federal level too you know just the way things are right now um it's gone a little further to the extreme wings so to speak yeah I don't see our legislature as it is currently constituted saying, okay, we're going to find ways to make adoption streamlined, easier, less costly. I don't see our legislature coming up with supports for young single mothers. Uh, I just, we know what should happen if you really want to be pro-life. But What is going to happen is people are going to say personal responsibility,
0: you right? Know, and you, sh- you, hear you shouldn't that. be like, doing this. Well, and you, you see this with um, kids who grow who are born into poverty and born into mm-hmm. really rough situations. You know, they get abused, and neglected, and we have all this sympathy for abused, and neglected kids. We might take them out. We there's this whole issue of you know we're trying to reunify them with a family. But then a lot of those kids, like when you go to, to juvenile court where kids have committed crimes, almost all of them have come from the child welfare side of things. But we mm-hmm. lose sympathy for kids at that point. Yeah. And so we talk about pro life. You got to be pro life for those kids too. And there's so many times we we lose focus after birth. Like oh, it's great we help new mothers. Okay, motherhood from my I mean, granted I'm talking from my experience. It gets tough in those preteen years and sometimes those teen years. I mean, the, the newborns Mm -hmm. are hard and toddlers can be tough, but man, Mm -hmm. that was nothing compared to when they get older. And then if some of them have, and not necessarily mine, but I've seen other families struggle with the onset of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about pro-life in this this situation, some kids are going to be born with severe disabilities, um, and that, that concerns me, too, because a lot of some situations I know of that women have gone through, the abortion was for, like, genetic disorders where a child was going to basically, if it made it to birth, would die soon after.
1: And I know somebody some, exactly you know, like some that. Some
0: that, that die maybe a year later, but the extreme disabilities and, and things. And so there are, and that's not, the only exception we have is for the health of the mother. Well, that's going to how that's there's going to be some hair splitting on that, and so you know, well, we're I, in a, you
1: know, their intent on that though is it's not just the health general. It is if this person is going to possibly die, right? then it's okay.
0: But what but about that's, that's I argue, What line. about the 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 health of the 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 fetus or the baby? If the baby is going to die,
1: yeah, and,
0: and that I mean there are some so. I, there are a lot of things that we're now in a position that, of trying to look at this law through the lens of who's vulnerable, mm-hmm. and and I think we have to, to to look at that a little bit more. And so our editorial board position is we need to at least carve out some exemptions for rape and incest, and with this, and we can get more into the the, the snitch law later, which is all civil, yeah. but. Um, but yeah. I mean, it's a new era. And, and in that spirit, I went and I found this research and I was researching something years ago. I had come across in our, we call it the morgue or the archives where we have uh, for, since I think the 1940s, the actual uh, clippings from the Tulsa World and Tulsa Tribune in our building. And I was looking up some Roe v. Wade information and a reporter, a young reporter at the time in 1972, Pat Atkinson, who was an experienced editor by the time I arrived, but she had in 1972 done a series, a couple of stories uh, following women or talking to women, I should say, who were getting abortions at that time. They were illegal in Oklahoma. So she talked to women about what they were doing to get the illegal abortion in in Tulsa. And then the women of means who were flying out to New York to get a legal abortion. Is at the and she and I talked to her a little bit and she's fascinating. She's retired with horses, but she remembers (laughs) that era. And she said that one of the interesting things as a writer, she said the male editors didn't want to run the stories, that they just like didn't want to talk about it. It was just, you know, they were not into women's issues at the time. So not long ago, women's issues were not a priority. But she said what finally convinced them to run it was. The Oklahoma legislature was operating at the time under a 1910 ban, which almost it mirrors what we have now. The only mm-hmm. exemption was for the, the to save the mother. And they were going to change that. So that's what convinced them to let her do these stories. And I'll tell you, I don't want to give it away, but what women went through to get illegal abortions in Tulsa is horrifying. And that was a term, that was a description by a woman who had gotten one. And So I went back, and so my column this week is all about just those stories. Like, this was what was reported 50 years ago when abortion was illegal, and this is what the world was like. Now, whether we exactly return to that, I don't know, but I know that there was certainly a desperation that came across from those old stories that I think women are going to feel again. And when you feel desperate, you act desperate so
1: there's one um, anecdote in particularly in that column that is pretty harrowing so yeah you need to people if you haven't clicked on that one yet or you're waiting for your print yeah, edition so make sure you read that column it's something yeah, I
0: else did, I told Pat and I talked to her I said I'm not gonna I said I, there's not a whole lot of opinion in this column I'm just staying out of the way and letting the past talk yeah and letting people just think about when as moving forward what this looks like so but the, and I will say there, Representative Jeff Boatman contributed an, uh, an op ed that I'm running, and he's very pro life and he's happy with the way the laws are, but he's encouraging people now, and he recognizes the weakness in that movement has always been the lack of support for, for yeah. family, pro family uh, laws. And he said he pointed out the foster care, he pointed out a lot of different things that now he's calling upon the movement to say, okay, it doesn't end at birth. We've got, and so nope. he is, which I was glad to see that instead of saying, Hey, now we need to ban contraception and all this other stuff. He's saying, no, now we need to put focus on helping people. So I, I'm glad he contributed that and I'm running that as well. So, mm-hmm. um, not that coming. So, but the Supreme court, they've been pretty active. Yeah. But, Very. Yeah. You know, there was a gun law in New York that, um, has upset some people because New York had some uh, gun safety measures that the justices threw out and said basically you should you can have permitless open carry. So that has we already have that in Oklahoma, but the other one today it was today or it was no it was yesterday mm-hmm. that our state is calling a big win, but they've been trying to overturn McGirt for quite a for the last two years mm-hmm. and. So they've been suing sort of around the edges of it to get it limited. And so what's interesting about this case, I I think it muddies the water more, the the state, the governor and our mayor and different people say that this adds clarity to it. I see it as actually doing the opposite. And some of the um, lawyers I know who specialize in Indian law, they are sort of of that same uh, boat that they said this actually causes more confusion in this area of law. But it it basically, the, the majority opinion written by Kavanaugh with a dissent from Gorsuch, which is interesting because Gorsuch had written McGirt as a majority and Gorsuch, of all of them, the most, has the most experience in Indian law and oversight. but the majority written by Kavanaugh Said that the state can prosecute crimes if it's a non Indian perpetrator committing a crime against an Indian person on Indian land. And they're saying mm-hmm. that's okay. But it was the way some of the, the Gorse, the Kavanaugh wrote the opinion that really threw some people in a loop. At one point, he referred to, um, I'm going off the top of my head, but referring to the laws on Indian land as being basically inconsequential to the real world, which, yeah. yeah I mean, that's offensive. I mean, really, it's like, no, extremely condescending laws on Indian land. And he also, one that I've seen a lot of people refer to is referring to tribal governments as not being separate from the state, but being part of the state, which throws into yeah. question, I mean, sovereignty has been established. The idea of sovereignty has been established since what, 1830s? And so I don't, I don't know where that and that throws things in, in, into question. And um but Gorsuch's dissent is blistering. Mm-hmm. I mean just you should just read it. I mean people who are really interested into this, because he basically brings up a lot of case law that says this really throws into question a lot of things. And he calls it like one of the worst decisions that the court's making, but it is law. And, you know, hopefully we will, uh, we will, and I've always said, I think our board has always believed we can work through the issues.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think, so you mentioned kind of confusion that this could cause in terms of like, okay, well now we can prosecute these people. Cool. Well, now you got to drill down and figure that stuff out. Makes it more complicated. We'll say it again, as we've said many times here. All of this is moot if the state can get together with the tribes, compact, cross-deputize, find cooperative ways to do this that respects tribal sovereignty, but also has something akin to what we knew of in court jurisprudence pre McGirt. Mm -hmm. but you have to do that and I know we've heard all these stories about oh we've reached out oh we've reached out this has been scorched earth for a while now Yeah. before the court decision uh, on McGirt was made we were seeing a radical change in the relations between the state of Oklahoma and the tribes Mm -hmm. so that right there is you know if we can get on board with, let's say, hey, let's work together again, mm-hmm. yeah, it might solve a lot of these problems. But you just yeah. got to want to do it instead of this, you know, winner take all, no take no prisoner. I just, approach. I don't,
0: well, and this is all being tried in courts. And so there's no, and it was interesting. Gorsuch even made a reference to, because since this came out, a lot of the conservative groups have been sort of saying, you know, pushing the court to make it, you know, overturn <clears> it. And Gorsuch, in sort of a passive aggressive way, made a comment about will the court wilt under a social media campaign? And one of the, uh, the responses to that question they threw out in that dissent, one of the, the tribal leaders said, clearly the answer is yes. So it, 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 I mean, the tribal leaders have come out really hard saying this makes things more complicated. But if it's in the court, the people, the public doesn't have a say. And that's sort of the issue. Is there are other ways for us to act in in because the tribes are going to be here. They you know they were here before the federal and state courts were. So you know. Um, but speaking along those lines, we do have a new attorney general. So we had the we primary races. We and, will have a new attorney
1: general, likely.
0: Huh. Is there oh, a, is there, a, right. libertarian there is, a libertarian running? Right. Yeah. True. So Gittner Drummond beat John O'Connor by 6,000 votes, very close. Um, and I saw that John O'Connor actually won a big opioid settlement. So, you know, he is leaving Oklahoma on, on a high note on that. But he won't take whoever, if Gittner beats the Libertarian, then he takes office G- January. Is that right? The, I think so. Yeah. So it's November, then January. But one of the things that Gittner has said is that he wants to, he has ideas to work with the tribes on how to establish more agreements and do exactly what you're saying. So, Mm -hmm. but those, uh, the primary races were interesting. I mean, they always are. Mm
1: -hmm. Their
0: Democrats didn't have much to vote on. My, I won't say, (laughs) I have a friend who was quite upset about not being able to vote in the state superintendent race. Person's not a, a Republican. And the point was, well, if we if school board's not partisan, why is the state superintendent the state superintendent partisan? And I said, well, if you could go down the list on that. Why is mm. the auditor partisan? <laughs> why is labor commissioner partisan? Why all these? I said, but that's mm. that's a column or an editorial for another day. But but you that had a column talking about this. So so kind of give us your thoughts on the races and you wrote a column about how basically the Republicans were yeah. able to, to dominate in this at this time in our history.
1: So going as far as like the election itself, uh, one thing that I found interesting, I'll make a quick note of this, is how did the, you know, air quotes stit ticket do mixed mm-hmm. with O'Connor losing, um, Cindy Bird winning, and it looks like and getting her Drummond. obviously that was probably the most high profile deal of the of last tuesday's election you know coming in there i ryan thought that walters was interesting
0: he was on he was He's in a runoff. Wasn't running so much on stitz name but ryan walters was um yeah
1: sean ryan Walters, yeah sean robertson ryan walters made a runoff pressure. yeah so yeah kind of interesting but so you know it'd be interesting to see what happens going forward with all of that stuff as we get into the november elections oh and august runoffs how that all plays out because there's a couple races still in play right now uh with you know a couple of stitz guys still in there as far as the column goes and this goes back to you know something i saw uh, as far as like percentages of people participating in tuesday's primaries uh it's pretty low about 30 something percent of uh, eligible republican voters voted. For the Democrats, it was in the teens. Mm. Now I understand that there wasn't much there. There wasn't much to be that excited about, but you know, there was a state superintendent race that had two viable candidates and people just weren't motivated. So when I look at that kind of thing and I see, I see how it seems the Republicans have a consistent level of energy when they go to the polls. And policymakers have a very consistent plan of attack on goals. They just keep plugging away. It's very disciplined. That's the word that I like to use. The the GOP, the conservative movement, the right, whatever you wanna call them, they have a high degree of political discipline and patience that basically took us to where we ended up last Friday at the supreme court Mm -hmm. you know roe v wade was seen as something that was unassailable rock solid settled law for half a century and then all of a sudden it wasn't and i contended that what you see with the republicans is what led to that conversely with the democrats they tend to either fly really really high and energetic on positive mojo, as you saw in 2008 with the uh, election of Barack Obama, or in 2018 uh, as a reaction, and 2020 or 2020 um, with how the Democrats took over the House and then, you know, later voted in Joe Biden, gained effective somewhat control of the Senate. But when they're not excited as they were in 2016, and it's clear, I mean, you can talk about all the shenanigans and everything you want, but the fact is, is that the democratic or progressive or leftist vote or whatever you say was depressed in 2016. Folks didn't show up or they voted for Jill Stein or they wrote in something stupid or whatever. And then everyone was shocked when Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. And I would say, 2016 election was as consequential as they get. We are learning that in a major way because of how we're seeing just kind of a huge shift in where we are in a political you mean the
0: 2018
1: election. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, 2018 was nice, and you are nice for, for the Democrats. You know, they took the House. Okay,
0: okay, okay. I know what
1: 2016 you're about, yeah. presidential election. Trump with the big upset over Hillary Clinton. Yeah. They didn't show up like they did in 2018. They didn't show up like they did in 2020. That to me is a sign of a lack of political discipline. They are not willing to say, you know what? Not really fired up about this candidate, but I'm coming out. Whereas the Republicans in 2016, there were some who were fired up about Trump. But for the most part that year, it was, well, he's our guy and I'm voting for our guy. They came out. And if you look at it now, Trump has been out of office for 18 months. But his impact, I mean, I swear, it's like an aftershocks in an earthquake. It's still there. And it's just as powerful as if he was in office right now. Well, that matters.
0: That, yeah. Well, that segs into the uh, Capitol testimony I, okay. I have I mean I've kind of caught it here and there because it's been um I've been working like most people, yeah. but I had a friend of mine text me last week saying, Are you watching this right now? and I'm like, no and so I caught the Cassidy Hutchison testimony and I was riveted I was just um my friend called it the John Mitchell moment, which dates my friend uh but it was it was that moment of you know, we had been hearing, you know, text. I mean, I was sort of fascinated by the video uh, testimony from Bill Barr and Ivanka Trump and some of these mm-hmm. others who were, you know, I mean, definitely Trumpers and insiders. And about that, she was a, a firsthand witness to a lot of it, just by where she was She was an assistant to Mark Meadows. And just her, she was there. The only thing mm-hmm. that she wasn't there for, and you wrote you write a column on this, uh she heard it kind of secondhand from Mark Meadows, uh, President Trump's reaction, uh, where he threw food and he might have tried to take over the car from a Secret Service agent. She didn't witness that firsthand. She had heard that from. But everything else, I mean, she was there and had a front hand. It's like you wouldn't always know about the fly on the wall. She was the fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. and Man, I mean, I. I know some conservatives who have just sworn they're not going to watch it. And I—I I, that makes me sad because the findings, and, and of course, you know, now they're trying to, you know, assail her character, which is unfortunate because, you know, I won't go as far as to call her a hero of the moment. It did take her a year and a half to come forward and being compelled to, but she finally did. So she's not a liberal. She's she was all in. She was a Trump person, but I think that, you know, she's 26 coming forward, that's brave. And she's putting herself out there.
1: Yeah, she took some risks.
0: This is life-changing. And so, and saying things that people that she agrees with don't want to hear. And I think for the people who say, <laughs> I'm not going to watch it, then you're being willfully ignorant of what's there. You should at least hear what was being said. But I was I was really more interested and sort of, you know, bothered. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what Congress is going to do next, that Trump knew that the rioters had, were armed, that he wanted to join them, that Mm -hmm. his reaction to the hang Mike Pence is Mike deserves it. So yeah. Those, those, those things as an American bother me. And I don't, I don't know people are trying, and I know people are trying to justify it in some way. I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to Watergate where the offense was so much less. And yet here we are with these very serious things um, that I, I would like to know what's going to happen next. I don't think it can go on. I don't know where, where it should go, but I know that you know, that's a lot of, there were a lot of men in that room with a lot of political experience that didn't do the right thing. Mm. So, well, I mean, but you wrote a column on it. What, what's the, what, what, what got you motivated to write a column on it?
1: Yeah. Um, so the hearings so far have been kind of this, a detailed retelling of the whole Stop the Steal movement, who was involved in it, why it was not true, all that stuff. Um, Some of the harassment that state officials were taking and everything like that. So what that does is it, it creates this contextual environment of leading up to January 6th. But the big question that people want to know is how, was this just a a protest that got out of control and it's nobody's it's none of the higher-ups fault or how far up the chain does this go and was this planned and how you know was trump in on it did trump plan this did mark meadows plan this did all of his inner circle have an expectation of what happened on january 6th so far in the prior testimony that's that hasn't been answered it's been hinted at and it's kind of like you know people have suspected it but when when this witness showed up and talked about it it was like all right so i'm starting checking off a list mark meadows knew it was going to go down a few days before he knew it rudy giuliani knew what was going on he was excited about it when trump was talking about um wanting to go to the capitol and being dissuaded from doing so by people saying if you go there we are all going to jail he knew you know and he was saying that hey let them in i don't care if they're if they're armed get rid of the metal detectors let these people in i want to see a big full crowd they're not here to hurt me he knew they were coming and he knew they were going to be armed and then When he basically said, I don't think they're doing anything wrong, when he was told of the violence, that tells me that there was an expectation that this was going to go down. And he wanted to go to the Capitol to give a speech at the Capitol following his rally. Why would you want to give another speech there unless you were looking for some kind of an end result of what happened at the Capitol? So people call that, is that a smoking gun? man, unless somebody can come in there and show proof that everything the Tuesday's witness said was bunk. Yeah, it's a smoking gun.
0: Yeah, the, I, because Watergate is at its 50th, a lot of 50th, uh, no, yeah, the 50th anniversary. Things are the same and different, but I've been (laughs) sort of going back to, uh, uh, to those stories and kind of, you know, watching documentaries on it and stuff. But one of the things that does stood out and there was a, a prominent Republican <clears throat> years ago, you know, when Trump was in office and there were these rumblings of, of things not going right. Um, at the time of Watergate, you know, the, tr- Nixon had his supporters and defenders high up in the Republican party and in Congress. And they thought he didn't do anything wrong and, and stood by him until the hearing showed differently and it was you know obvious that Nixon had done illegal things that he was involved in a conspiracy that he knew you know you know what did you know what what did he know when and they did the right thing by putting the country first instead of the party and asked him to resign I mean they kind of forced you know there were these famous you know stories of going to Nixon and saying, you're going to, you're going to step down. And Mm -hmm. at the time, the Republicans acted right. Well, you know, you could say by contrast, the Democrats may not have acted right with Clinton, that Clinton, you know, when his wrongdoings, they defended him, and maybe they should have taken different actions. Um, And so, you know, I would rather have parties act more like the Republicans in Watergate than I did, you know, the Democrats with Clinton and his wrongdoings. Um, though you could argue whether what Nixon did was wrong or right, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, do you put party or your country first? And we're at a moment where we have leaders that we have to ask, are you going to put your party or your country first? And Trump is no longer in office. But as you said, you know, we have these, you know, earthquake tremors of him. We've got a lot of people running on Trump Mm -hmm. and the more and more we learn about it, I think we have to get past the, the the signs and the you know the rhetoric and ask what what are we doing here? What is this? Is this the party? Is Trump the party? Or are you? What do you stand for? And so mm-hmm. I think we're at this really crucial moment, and I don't know what the answer is, but um, but I I just I, I keep going back to the Republicans did the right thing with Nixon, and I'm I'm wanting some. I'm wanting that goodness to come back. I want to have faith in my institution again. That, frankly, with everything going on, I'm, I'm not having, I'm not feeling a lot of, a lot of faith. Let me that. throw
1: something out there just for grins, for further context on the hearings, because I know that one of the gripes that people are having who are supporters of Trump is that there's just a couple Republicans on the panel. The rest yeah. are Democrats, and you know they're calling Kinzinger and Cheney rhinos the vast majority of the witnesses who have testified are republicans
0: and they were trump republicans
1: yes they voted for him and in some cases they voted for him in both elections and they are testifying so these are not rhinos these are not closet liberals these are some of them are just old-fashioned reagan republicans some of them are america first trump republicans that's the vast majority of the people who are testifying at the Capitol right now.
0: So on a different note, happy 4th of July. (laughs) I just said I don't have faith in my government institutions and we're going to go out and celebrate the 4th. But you know what? I mean, I I do think I'm an optimist. And, you know, whether it's McGirt, whether it's, you know, these hearings, our country has survived a lot of stuff. It has. war, we have survived countless, you know, tragedies and and traumas, and, um, you know, I sat down to write an editorial, and I just thought, no matter how you feel in this moment, what a good time to set aside, go back to the Declaration of Independence, which most of it was about bitching about the, the king, I got that, but at the end of it, it had this great line of just, we're here united, We Mm -hmm. are here and we're going to put our faith in each other and we're going to get through this. I mean, they're declaring, I mean, you know, that we're going to, you know, fight Goliath here and we're going to have faith in each other to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think there are these moments in our history that we come out stronger through strife because we have to go back to those words and say, what do we have in common? That our diversity of people and perspective, if we can just put aside you know the, the the hatred and the meanness and the and, and just focusing on differences all the time and just saying what do we have in common? That's what mm-hmm. makes us stronger. And so I do have faith in that, and I do think everyday people can do extraordinary things. And for me, that's what we celebrate on the Fourth of July. Because honestly, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, it didn't free a whole lot of people. It freed a group of people. But because we are a self-governing people, we can change things. And so Mm -hmm. that I believe in. And I think that's worth celebrating. I agree. So happy 4th of July.
1: Happy 4th of July.
0: All right. Any last words?
1: Gosh, any last words? Well, maybe a nice 4th of July three-day weekend is what everybody needs to take a breath. (laughs) Please go do that. De-stress. You know, find something to do that you love on the 4th. I know some people that they love the 4th because they like blowing up stuff. And it's like, you know what? If that's going to, you know, shooting <laughs> off fireworks and watching stuff go boom is going to give you a moment of happiness. Hey, take it. Give yourself some joy.
0: That's right. Namaste.
1: Your- Namaste. Or that's what they like say that. in
0: yoga class. I don't really, you know, it just sounds good. So anyway, I hope everyone does have a good 4th. We'll be back. And um, we'll charge forward. So have a good one. See ya.